You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 1st of November 2023 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead... I'm deeply concerned about the clear violations of international humanitarian law that we are witnessing in Gaza. The UN Secretary General speaks out about the crisis in the Middle East. We'll talk to a Palestinian journalist for an update on the humanitarian crisis there. EU Chief Ursula von der Leyen is in the Western Balkans, offering EU investment, but she stresses the cash comes with the need for reform in the region. We'll examine the future of pharmacies as large numbers face closure, and is stability in the Arctic on thin ice? The Arctic is a bit of the canary in the coal mine. So whatever is going on at the Arctic gives very good indication of what's going on with climate change. We'll unpack how climate change and Russia's war in Ukraine have significantly altered Arctic security with René van Hel, the Dutch Arctic ambassador. Plus, we'll celebrate a Japanese cheesemaker who's taking the world of raclette by storm. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Yemen's Houthis have waded into the Israel-Hamas war, raging more than a 1,000 miles from their seat of power in Sana'a, declaring they've fired drones and missiles at Israel in attacks that highlight the regional risks of the conflict. North Korea is poised to close as many as a dozen embassies, including in Spain, Hong Kong and multiple countries in Africa, in a move that could see nearly 25% of Pyongyang's missions close worldwide. And residents in three areas in Australia's northern Queensland state were ordered to evacuate their homes today as bushfires burned out of control. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, a refugee camp in northern Gaza has been hit by airstrikes as Israel continues to bomb the area in retaliation for the 7th of October Hamas attacks that killed 1,400 people and saw at least 239 people kidnapped. In this latest strike, the Hamas-run health ministry says at least 50 people were killed. The same source says that more than 8,500 people have lost their lives in Gaza since the bombing began. The United Nations Secretary-General, Antonio Guterres, says he's deeply alarmed by the intensification of the conflict in Gaza. He reiterated his call for a ceasefire so unimpeded humanitarian access can be granted consistently. Well, I'm joined now by Abir Ayoub, who is a Palestinian journalist who's monitoring events from Istanbul. Abir, many thanks for joining us once again. Can you tell us more about this attack on the refugee camp, please? Yeah, what we know so far that according to the Hamas Ministry of Interior that the camp was uh, shelled by four bombs um, that ten, that uh, weights uh, tens of, uh, of uh, explosions. This is why almost the complete uh, uh, refugee camp was was destroyed in Gaza. The refugee 
camps are are not very well built so the the house uh, are the houses there are kind of makeshift this is why the damage was so uh, large uh, the idf admitted later that it targeted this camp because it was targeting um uh, hamas leader who who were there uh, who was there we are not sure what happened if he was killed but but this is exactly why the the bombing was this intense and can you tell us have there been any more developments overnight yeah what we know that there were armed uh, clashes between uh, israeli soldiers and uh, palestinian fighters that resulted in killing nine uh, uh, israeli soldiers uh, we know that the the clashes were taking place in al zaytun neighborhood uh, in the gaza city um, in the east and also in khan yunis uh, in the uh, southern gaza strip also um, the uh, uh, al qassam the, the armed brigade of hamas uh, said that it uh, managed to destroy many Israeli tanks during the night. And I wonder if you could give us an overview of the humanitarian situation. Is aid getting through at all? Uh, aid is getting through in a very, very uh, small amount that's not uh, enough for for more than 2.2 Palestinians in Gaza. I mean, if now I think... Um, less than 100 uh, convoys w- were allowed in into Gaza. Gaza needs more than this number for the single day. Um, we are talking about um, um, needs of water, flour, uh, basic goods uh, that that's uh, that are running uh, out in Gaza. Also, the sanitary sanitary uh, products, uh, hygiene products. So. All of this um, is making the humanitarian situation in Gaza really terrible. Also, you are talking about one third of hospitals in Gaza uh, are out of service now. So uh, the, the humanitarian situation is going from uh, worse to worse. Also, the internet connection and network signals were cut again last night. This also uh, increased uh, the, the critical situation because people cannot make any call to to you know to provide their families with a uh, amount of water food etc now french journalists have asked for the gaza strip to be opened up to give press access there are though some journalists who are, are already in in the area uh, the committee to protect journalists the cpj says conflicts this conflict has been the deadliest period for journalists covering israel and gaza since records began back in 1992 and i wonder what the challenges are for you reporting from istanbul and are you in touch with journalists in gaza and how the situation is for them the situation there is is really bad. I mean, uh, I think for now, ten uh, so uh, ten uh, journalists were killed since the the beginning of the war, and also the mobility is not uh, is not very good. So um, people in the south are reporting from the south. People are the in the north reporting from there. Journalists are not able to move freely from the north to the south. I report from Istanbul. I think it's it has, of course, the the good sides and the negative sides. I all, 
always have internet connection. I don't have to evacuate. Most of journalists evacuated their house three or four times since the war began. So I'm I'm kind of stable staying in one place. Uh, but the problem now is that sometimes I don't have, they don't have internet connection, so I cannot do the interviews because the internet was was cut. Um, of course, you need to be on the ground to know exactly what's going on, to talk to the people, to go to the schools where people are sheltering, to go to the hospitals, uh, all these details. But um, I, I myself, if I if I was in Gaza, I don't think I will be moving around Gaza because it's so risky. And I know that all the journalists who are covering Gaza now on the ground, they are sacrificing their lives and they are aware of this. How reliable do you think the official information coming out of Gaza is? It is reliable to me. Why? Because it has been the case for all the wars and because uh, uh, hospitals there, they are dealing with the number of people uh, killed, injured. They have a database. Uh, They publish the names of people killed on a daily basis. We have now a a PDF file for the uh, 7,000 people who were killed in the the first 20,000 two days of the war. So every government, of course, and by nature, will be responsible for giving the information because they are on the ground. And I think all the attempts to, to you know, um, to spread doubt around these numbers is just um, attempts uh, trying to dehumanize Palestinians in Gaza. And this was the approach for a lot a lot of uh, governments, media outlets, etc. since the war began. Now, we know that the IDF, the Israeli Defence Force, is intensifying operations on the ground. Do you have any detail on that? We've seen some footage that they've uh, released. Yeah, we know, uh, as I told you, that nine soldiers were killed during the night and many tanks were, were destroyed. We know that they are not able to do um, a huge progress because uh, Palestinian uh, fighters are um, doing, you know, uh, armed um, uh, confrontations on all that areas. But uh, still, uh, civilians in Gaza are very worried that the Israeli soldiers will make more uh, ground uh, invasions that will uh, separate parts of the Gaza uh, Strip into parts which will make it hard for them to know each other, to know anything about each other. Uh, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's rejected calls for a ceasefire this week. Uh, the US National Security Council spokesman, that's John Kirby, uh, has also said that Washington doesn't believe a ceasefire is the, the right answer right now. He's urged, uh, urged a pause uh, to get aid into Gaza, as have several leaders around the world. Do you think that's likely to happen? Well, uh, I, I, just like you, I know that Israel is not interested in cutting the in making any ceasefire right now because this war started in the first place. This war started in the first place as a re- retaliation against what happened on on October the seventh, 
And the Israeli public opinion reflects how unsatisfied people are with the progress of this war because it's not really bringing any uh, results or any uh, achievements. So uh, I know, and and as as uh, as it is understood, that Israel wants to to achieve. Uh, its goals uh, from from you know the war, which is not really practical. One of the the goals is to completely destroy Hamas. That has been the goal in the two thousand and eight, nine, two thousand and twelve, fourteen, twenty one wars, and it didn't happen. Hamas was not even. Uh, weakened because after all this, the the attack of uh, October the seventh happened. So um, these goals are not practical. Uh, I believe Benjamin Netanyahu is looking for a victory, and I'm not sure that the the current operation with with the the way we we are seeing will will lead to anything, neither for Palestinians nor for Israelis. Abir, thank you very much indeed. That's Abir Ayub there speaking to us from Istanbul. And this is The Globalist. It is 8.13 in Sarajevo and 7.13 here in London. Ursula von der Leyen, the European Commission chief, is on a four-day tour of the Western Balkans. She says she wants to bring the economies of the region and the European Union closer. She's offering an EU investment of €6 billion, but has stressed the need for reforms. Well, I'm joined on the line now from Ljubljana by Guy Delaunay, who's Monocle's Balkans correspondent. Uh, Guy, good morning to you. What is von der Leyen doing in the region? Well, morning, Georgina. She's doing a bit of PR, really. I think she's trying to also um, raise her own profile a bit in the region uh, where there are lots of other EU figures who come in, not least uh, Joseph Borrell, the foreign policy chief. Um, And she wants to make sure that uh, she's being seen as being an influential figure in the region. And she's touting this uh, new growth plan for the Western Balkans. And you know, cynics among us uh, would say, well, OK, we've heard plans for the Western Balkans before, going right back to 2003 and the Thessaloniki Declaration, when the European Union said, yes, we want you all in the European Union as soon as possible. And that, of course, was 20 years ago. Mm. Uh, but this time she's uh, offering uh, key parts of the European single market opening for companies from for countries from the Western Balkans. Uh, they want uh, the the Western Balkans countries to open a a common regional market so that they've got basically a free trade zone within the Western Balkans. There's a bit of that already uh, with something called Open Balkan, which involves Albania, Serbia, North Macedonia. Uh, But of course, positive reforms she's talking about as well, for example, in the business environment and uh, including judicial reforms, anti-corruption reforms. And then, you know, the, the carrot for all of this is a six billion package, as you mentioned, six billion euro package of funds to make these reforms possible. Now, she's been in both Kosovo and Serbia over the past couple of days. Has she been able to make a breakthrough where many others have failed? I think not. And I think she rather put her foot in it, to be honest with you. Uh, because when she was in Kosovo, this is this is what she said. Because you know, regular listeners will remember that basically we've had a lot of tension between Serbia and Kosovo this year. Uh, there was supposedly a normalisation agreement which was reached 
um, earlier this year under the auspices of the EU, uh, the Ocrid Agreement, named after the town in North Macedonia, where it was supposedly agreed. Now, I was very sceptical about this from the off, as were many other people, and of course it just hasn't been implemented at all, and since then we've seen all sorts of tensions uh, between Serbia and Kosovo, including the forced installation of ethnic Albanian mayors in majority Serb areas in Kosovo, and uh, an armed group of ethnic Serbs in, at the end of September uh, who were involved in a confrontation with Kosovo police, which turned deadly with three people killed. So tensions have been very high. So everybody in the EU are trying to get Kosovo and Serbia, at the very least, talking to each other again. And the, the idea they've got at the moment is that we're somehow going to go back to this agreement uh, made in March, which nobody has shown any signs of wanting to implement whatsoever. And um, it, Ursula von der Leyen said when she was in Pristina uh, that Kosovo would have to implement the agreement, which includes establishing an association of majority Serb municipalities within Kosovo, which has been a major sticking point for at least a decade. Um, and in return, uh, she wanted Serbia to deliver on what she called de facto recognition of Kosovo. And now this is uh, rather a problematic phrase because we're approaching an election in Serbia. In fact, uh, President Aleksandr Vucic may about be, be about to declare formally uh, parliamentary elections today to take place next month. And nobody in Serbia, no politician in Serbia, is going to want the word recognition, uh, even if prefaced with uh, the, the qualifier de facto, um, being attached to them ahead of an election campaign. It's going to be a massive vote loser. So quite why Ursula von der Leyen is, is looking at this agreement and framing it in these terms is a bit of a mystery. And it was notable that she didn't repeat that phrase when she was in Belgrade. Uh, and what did the Serbian uh, president r respond to this? Well, uh, Alexander Vucic has got this response down by pat by now. In fact, it's pretty much repeating what he said in March after this agreement was supposedly reached, which was that they'd implement all parts of the agreement, uh, but they would not recognise Kosovo. They would not allow Kosovo's membership of the United Nations. And Kosovo, of course, argues that this doesn't go along with the agreement at all. That The agreement is, supposedly says that Serbia won't stand in Kosovo's way of joining international organisations. And a lot of people would also say, well, if Serbia is agreeing to recognise uh, Kosovo's international do its documents and its symbols, then that equates to de facto recognition, that normalization is de facto recognition. But as I've said before, this is an issue of presentation uh, in, in, in many respects. And Alexander Vucic is certainly not going to suggest that he's going to uh, uh, deliver on de facto recognition of Kosovo. And he stated it uh, very calmly, very clearly. He said, you know, Serbia is willing to do everything else, but not that. Mm. She is moving on to Bosnia today. Uh, what can we expect there? Well, I think what Bosnia would like is for Ursula von der Leyen to say, yes, well, you're going to get a green light uh, to start your European Union accession talks. Uh, that's very much what Bosnia would like. It, uh, it's not at that stage yet, and they would like to hear this. I, I, I doubt they're going to hear this. I think what they're going to get is a repeat of what Ursula von der Leyen has been saying in every other stop on her tour. In other words, this you know, European growth plan and the, the six billion euros, uh, because Bosnia has been struggling to deliver on a, a series of reforms that the European Union has asked it to introduce before it can uh, start accession talks. So there were meant to be 14 reforms. It, it's delivered on a couple of those, and uh, it's barely made any progress in the others. So it's going to be highly unlikely they're going to hear this good news from Ursula von der Leyen that they're waiting for. Um, if they do, one suspects, you know, they're going to receive it and knowing that 
you, the European Union makes promises, but they sometimes take, well, they usually take an awfully long time to deliver on them. Hmm. Guy, thank you very much. Uh, lovely to speak to you again. That's Guy Delaunay in Ljubljana. Now, still to come on the programme is peace in the Arctic on thin ice. The Arctic is a bit of the canary in the coal mine. So whatever is going on at the Arctic gives very good indication of what's going on with climate change. We'll examine how the war in Ukraine and climate change are affecting the Arctic. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. It is 7.21 in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. You're listening to The Globalist and we're going to continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Paul Waldy, who is The Globe and Mail's Europe correspondent. Good morning to you, Paul. Good morning. Uh, The UK papers are full of the COVID inquiry, uh, as is everything online and uh, in, in every form of electronic media. People are very, very shocked by the language used. I would say that more shocking is the fact that it was utterly chaotic behind the scenes, as we now know. I think that's exactly it. You know, we knew that things were kind of dysfunctional in Downing Street during the pandemic, but I don't think we knew it was quite as bad as what Dominic Cummings and Lee Keane portrayed yesterday in their testimony. I mean, basically, Dominic Cummings was saying the cabinet was irrelevant. It's not a good form to make decisions. He was saying the Cobra meetings were pointless. And he even said at one point that there was no point in the prime minister speaking with the leaders from Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, which I think is pretty damning indictment of the way the country works and the way the government functions, whether or not there's a pandemic. So, you know, this is bad news. It's bad news for Rishi Sunak as he tries to put all of this behind him. He has to testify. Obviously, it's bad news for Boris Johnson, who was prime minister. And and just the language in some of these uh, text messages and emails is, you know, atrocious and really kind of, I think, speaks to just how badly run things were at that time. I mean, it really does seem extraordinary. Nobody appears to have been in charge. I wonder how much this is Lee Kane and Dominic Cummings throwing their former boss under the bus. Clearly, there's bad blood between them. There is, and we know that that certainly between Dominic Cummings and Boris Johnson, we've certainly heard a lot about the bad blood between them, and Johnson's kind of given as good as he's gotten over the past year or so. But this really takes it to a different level, I think. But it also is a huge problem, I think, for Rishi Sunak as he tries to, you know, reinvent himself as the leader of change and everything else going into an election next year. I really wonder how he's going to come out of this because he has to testify and his name came up several times yesterday as well. Things he did and decisions he made that were criticized and that are going to come under a lot more scrutiny. So, yeah, it's bad news for Boris Johnson kind of looking back at his, you know, term in office, but it's really bad news for for Rishi Sunak as he tries to, you know, head into what could be an election next year. And of course, 
course, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time. He was accused of uh, his uh, Eat Out to Help Out program being Eat Out to Help Out the Virus. Well, exactly. And that was a very odd program. This was in the summer of 2020 when the pandemic was still, you know, front and center. And he was encouraging people, subsidizing people to go to restaurants at that time in the summer. And there were a lot of health experts saying, gee, you know, this is a great way to spread the virus. Let's pack the restaurants. Let's get everybody out again. You know, his plan or his idea was to try and help get the economy restarted or at least help small businesses get going again. But boy, I think in the in the hindsight, it was not the, the smartest, shrewdest thing to do. Mm. And of course, he is the only one or one of the only ones still left in power. So somebody's going to need to carry the can. Well, this is exactly it. And it'll be fascinating to see his testimony when he does appear uh, expected before Christmas. Yeah. Now let's talk about the Royals, something we hardly <laughs> ever do here. Uh, but actually, it's a much wider story because it's about uh, the King, King Charles and Camilla. They're on a tour of uh, Kenya. Uh, and this whole issue of reparations and apologies for colonial ills is coming up again. Well, it is. And I think it's fascinating here. There's a broader context in terms of these royal tours now. You know, when I was growing up and I'm, you know, I'm in my 60s and I remember when the royal family came to Canada and it was a big deal and it was pretty much handshaking and museum openings and ribbon cuttings. Now, though, when these senior royals travel, particularly the king, they're facing so many difficult questions in countries like Kenya, like Canada, like Australia and much of the Caribbean, the whole colonialism issue, First Nations issues. And they're, you know, now it's a case of when Charles goes to these countries, he's got to have a whole game plan in terms of how he's going to address these issues. And he's in a bit of a bind because the government here kind of tells him how far he can go. And in the case of Kenya, he's really not allowed to say an official apology. So what he has done is come as close as he can to sort of saying he he's feeling, he expressed sorrow, I think, for some of the things that happened uh, during Kenya's uh, struggle for independence. And, you know, he's going to have to say the same things when he goes to Canada and Australia and New Zealand other places where there are other issues at play that also date back back to Britain's colonial rule. And of course, the reason he can't absolutely apologise 100% is that then opens the door. It's an admission of guilt and it opens the door for, for reparation payments. Well, you know, and that's the legal, that's the kind of lawyer speak and that's what the lawyers sort of tell them. I, I really question that and I wonder why not? Why not just come out and say you're sorry? I don't really think at this point it's going to cause that much damage. There are already claims for reparation. Britain has already made some reparation payments to Kenya. Those, those claims aren't going to go away anyway, so I I really think they should stop this kind of pussyfooting around with the language and just say it flat out. Absolutely. Uh, Let's turn to this very tragic death of a young hockey player on Saturday. Uh, Tell us more. Yeah, this was a game uh, featuring the Nottingham Panthers and the uh, Sheffield Steelers. This is a a pro hockey league in England. Now, hockey is obviously a a niche sport here in the UK, but it is a huge sport in Canada. And this story has gotten widespread attention. What has happened here is that when these two players collided, one player's kind of leg flew up and his skate slit the throat of the other player. And it was horrible, horrible injury, and they had to clear the arena, stop the game, obviously, and he's since died. And there's all kinds of questions now about what happened, how this happened, and whether or not there needs to be more protective gear. Neck guards need to be mandatory. They weren't mandatory in the UK, by and large. They are now as a result of this. They are mandatory in Canada. They're not in the US. So there's an awful lot of questions about whether or not players should wear this this piece of equipment. Now, these accidents are rare. There was a high school uh, kid in Connecticut who died in similar circumstances a year ago. But when you get to the elite level, the National Hockey League, um, there's only been two cases of this. 
and both players survive. So, but still, there's now questions about whether that league needs to start taking steps to to wear neck guards. But you know, this story really has reverberated everywhere. I mean, everybody kind of following it, whether you're a hockey fan or not, it is just a awful, awful situation. Not just obviously for the family and the player who died, but for the player whose skate hit this guy. I mean, he's. He's black. He's from Canada. He's been facing unbelievable racism and abuse online. Now, a lot of other people, many, many, many people have come to his support, including fans of the opposing team. But there's all kinds of questions about that, too, that come come from this uh, horrible, horrible situation. Now, police are investigating, but they're saying that that's really procedure. I don't think they think anybody's to blame specifically. They are, but I'm surprised it's gone on for this long. You know, this this happened Saturday night. Here we are, you know, Wednesday, and the, the police investigation is still going on. Now, obviously, these things take time and they have to look at health and safety issues as well. But I think anybody who looked at this with it was just pretty much an accident. I, I can't imagine anyone would conclude that this was deliberate in any way. Yeah. Finally, there is a new uh, word of the year. Collins Dictionary has come out with it. Now, I would argue that it isn't a word. It's a couple of <laughs> initials. Uh, so it's AI. AI, yeah. This is Collins Dictionary coming out with this. It's an interesting timing because, of course, we have this conference here starting this AI Safety Summit. Uh, Collins is saying, you know, the use of AI as a word or a term or two words or however you want to say it has quadrupled this year. And for them, it's now ranked to the top of the word of the year. Now, the shortlist includes a lot of other strange words like debanking and de-influencing and things like that. But AI somehow has trumped them all. Now, I, I can see that because it has become so much of a part of our daily lives and the discussion. And, and this summit, I think, is a reflection of that, that it is now very much front and center in a lot of people's minds. Absolutely. And as you say, a lot of other words like ULES, which is the <laughs> ultra low emission zone, which is all about fuel consumption in, in urban areas and lots of other funny and odd words. Now, one thing that's, that this coincides with nicely is the AI Safety Summit, which is happening here at Bletchley Park. Um, and yesterday we were reporting on how uh, Elon Musk is going to be there and how people have said, well, really, he doesn't really need to be there because he doesn't do a lot with AI. I got a note from a listener, so I'm mentioning it now, saying, well, actually, Tesla, which, of course, Musk owns, is at the absolute cutting edge of AI with its self-driving cars. And the listener, whose name was Ross, pointed out that he'd just been to driven to dinner whilst listening to us <laughs> buy one of these self-driving cars. So I guess Musk does have a place in that discussion. He has a place in the discussion, but you have to keep in mind that also it wasn't that long ago that Elon Musk was joined a bunch of academics saying there should be a pause in EI development because it has gone too far and it is going too far. So it'll be interesting to see if he raises that with Sunak on Thursday. Absolutely. And we're hoping to see some kind of res- regulations come out. Well, I, I, it's hard to say what's going to come out of this summer. There's a lot of people saying that the, that the actually the focus is too narrow. It's on kind of the extreme cases of AI and how to how to deal with them. And Britain itself is not keen on, on developing regulations per se. They really want to have a discussion and, and kind of build some kind of framework on that. But there's an awful lot of people saying that this summit is, is not addressing some of the more immediate concerns about AI, like disinformation, like copyright infringement, even people losing their jobs, that it's much too focused on these kind of really extreme examples of biochemicals and this kind of thing. So we'll see whether that changes over the next couple of days. Mm. It can be used for good, of course. The Beatles uh, have retrieved John Lennon's vocals from an old cassette to create a, 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 a brand new release. Yeah, I mean, it can be used for a lot of good things. I think there's even stories today about cancer research, too, and how AI has been used to detect cancer, and it does a much better job than a lot of other equipment, or certainly than, than humans can do. So there are an awful lot of examples of how AI can do good things, but it's the 
bad things, I guess, that that weigh on people's minds. Absolutely. So that's our brand new word of the year from Collins Dictionary. It's AI. That stands for artificial intelligence. And not, as Cliff Richards said in a media interview, (laughs) artificial insemination. (laughs) Paul Waldy, thank you very much indeed. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Yemen's Houthis have waded into the Israel-Hamas war, raging more than 1,000 miles from their seat of power in Sana'a, declaring they'd fired drones and missiles at Israel in attacks that highlight the regional risks of the conflict. North Korea is poised to close as many as a dozen embassies, including in Spain, Hong Kong and multiple countries in Africa, in a move that could see nearly 25% of Pyongyang's missions close worldwide. South Korea's Unification Ministry said this is a sign that the reclusive country is struggling to make money overseas because of international sanctions. And residents in three areas in Australia's northern Queensland state were ordered to evacuate their homes today as bushfires burned out of control. Firefighters, including those flown in from across Australia and New Zealand, have been battling blazes in the state that have already killed two and destroyed dozens of homes. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. We travel now to the chilly Arctic, a region long regarded as a paragon of peace and stability. But, as we've been discussing all of this week, Russia's war in Ukraine has shaken security dynamics in the Arctic. This was a key theme at the Arctic Circle Assembly, which took place last month in Reykjavik. Monocle's Andrew Muller attended the conference, where he spoke to René van Hel, the Netherlands ambassador for the Arctic. Andrew began by asking Ambassador van Hel to describe the Dutch interest in the region. The short answer is that we have a lot of interests. Mm. We're a country below sea level, and the Arctic has something to do with climate change. And we have a lot of scientists who love exploring what's going on in the Arctic. So it's those two things. <laughs> I, I did wonder about that genuinely, if there is some sort of uh, fellow feeling that the Dutch have with the Arctic nations based on your geographical situation. In the past, it was, you know, looking looking for Barents and all those names they come from, from Dutch ancestors. And uh, of course, there's also a lot of proximity, both both physically, but also mentally to, to the Nordic countries. So we've always had a strong interest in this region. Okay. So, but as a, an Arctic ambassador uh, of the Netherlands, what does the job actually involve? Presumably t- traveling to a lot of cold places, but but w- what happens once you get there? It's, it's, it's one of the three things that I do. I, I have a strong responsibility for climate and biodiversity and water, energy and food. And the Arctic is a bit of the canary in the coal mine. Mm-hmm. So, so whatever is going on at the Arctic gives very good indication of what's going on with climate change. So that's why we linked it together. And that's where my, my interest comes from. So it's really focused on the sustainability, on the science, and much less, for example, on the economic issues. Is the, is the conversation two-way, though? Do you feel like that there's something that the Netherlands can contribute to the Arctic? I know you were speaking here on a panel examining exactly that, what non-Arctic states uh, can bring to the conversation about the Arctic. But if we narrow that down to the Netherlands, what can you help with? I think we have, as I said, we have outstanding scientists. So, so that's what we bring to the fore. And we're friends, so we can also ask questions. And we have mutual interests. So I, I see a lot of mutual respect, and that's, that's always been going on. We were there from the get-go when the Arctic Council started. We were the first uh, observer. We just have a very solid, easy cooperation. And, you know, it's, what is it, seven out of eight are, uh, let's say, very close allies. And mm-hmm. we used to be okay with, with Russia, and that has changed. 
how big a dent does it put in uh, efforts to make constructive change in the Arctic if Russia is not participating in those changes? Because on the one hand, yeah, seven out of eight uh, of the Arctic Council are now well, are more on the same side than they ever were, given that Finland and presumably Sweden uh, are going to join NATO as well. But Russia is a huge Arctic country. Even during the Cold War, the Arctic Council, of course, was not NATO. Mm. And most most of the members were already part of NATO. So we always preserved this cooperation, scientific cooperation. And of course, when Russia is out of it, it has a big, it has an impact. For example, issues like thawing, permafrost. I mean, that's where you want Russia to be part of. So it definitely has has an impact. But yeah, as long as the uh, appalling war in Ukraine is going on, it, it, it will have definitely also consequences for the scientific cooperation that's going on. I mean, it's there, there, there is still scientific cooperation going on also with Russia, but um, it's very hard to start new things. There was another thing I was wondering, though, about, uh, the, I, I guess, especially dealing with the Nordic countries as a, as a Dutch diplomat, whether you find the political culture here actually quite familiar to a Dutch person. It is mostly in the Nordic countries, as I think it is mostly in the Netherlands. Well, certainly it seems from outside broadly reasonable and collegiate and consensual compared to a lot of other places. Do you, do you find that it's a, a fairly easy uh, journey, I guess, from dealing with the Netherlands to dealing with the Nordic countries? It's always been fairly easy to deal with anyone in the, in the Arctic Council, um, but definitely with our Nordic friends. Uh, it has something to do with the cultural similarities i think or uh, our, our take on life even if we're conservative we're, we're, we, we tend to be socially a bit more liberal than the most other uh, other countries and nations and we're blunt probably as also <laughs> i mean we're considered to be blunt and not so <laughs> not so polite <laughs> in general so <laughs> but see that that right there is an interesting question as well because I, I i know the 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 nordic peoples to be by and large as you put it a fairly blunt bunch and i also, it has been my experience that if you ask a Dutch person a question, you will get an answer. Um, what is the secret to everybody being blunt with each other, but without actually falling out? Uh, deep respect, a uh, deep respect, and I think it's just what you're used to. It's what just what would you grow up with, you know. If you <laughs> just say the truth, then at least I know who you are. You know, it's it's that kind of an, an attitude. So I think yeah, that the bluntness is also appreciated amongst ourselves. <laughs> I'm not I'm not I'm not suggesting that it always works well outside. That was René van Hel, the Netherlands ambassador for the Arctic and Sustainable Development, speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller at the Arctic Circle Assembly in Reykjavik. You're with Monocle Radio. In North America, major drugstore chains are closing hundreds of pharmacies. The same is happening in the UK, with people having to travel long distances to fulfil prescriptions and finding it difficult to access essential medicines and health products. Sheena Rossiter, Monocle's contributing editor in Edmonton, Canada, joins me now. Uh, Sheena, just how many pharmacies are closing in the United States? Well, quite a few, and the truth is that This is something that we've seen for a very long time with local, small, sort of, as you would call them, kind of mom and pop pharmacies. They've been shuttering their doors for the past several decades. Just to kind of quantify and put some of the numbers to it, there's an estimated about 64,000 pharmacies across the United States. Of course, those numbers are higher in urban areas than rural areas. And according to the Rural Health Research Gateway, between 2003 and 2021, about 9% of these independently owned pharmacies have started to decline 
and uh, mostly in metro areas in the U.S. But lately, what's been rather shocking is that big box pharmacies are now closing. And I'm talking about big retailers in in the United States, like the American chains like Rite Aid, CVS, and Walgreens. So Rite Aid has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, and CVS and Walgreens, they're expected to close about 1,500 stores over the next two years. And these closures have come for a number of factors. Part of it is increased competition and changing changes in consumer trends in general. The opioid crisis has had a pretty significant impact on this industry, and it's created a number of lawsuits and fines against these pharmacies. And retail crime and staffing shortages have been other issues. But the fact that less people are getting vaccinated now against COVID-19 and they're not buying those stay-at-home tests that they used to, just in general, uh, also pharmacies tend to be a little bit less profitable and big hypermarts like Walmart and the e-commerce giant like Amazon, they're just creating cheaper alternatives so people aren't really going to see their local pharmacist, but they're just ordering their drugs online. And are there issues around where these stores are closing? Yeah, this is a huge discrepancy here that... Most of the stores are closing in low-income neighborhoods, typically neighborhoods where a lot of Black and Latino uh, Americans live. So these pharmacies tend to be lifelines in these areas, and they tend to provide access to healthcare providers because maybe people don't go to the doctor or they can't afford to go to the doctor and they talk to a pharmacist there. So If you're taking medication and you live closer to a pharmacy, you're more likely to follow that medication as prescribed and maintain your health a little bit better. So the problems are when these pharmacies start to close, it really does impact patient care. And you might not be taking the medication that you need to be taking. Your health might worsen. And it also, there's a high correlation with these so-called pharmacy deserts and these so-called food deserts where there's no grocery stores. They tend to be in underserved communities where there's a lot of uh, people of color. And pharmacies tend to be a place where people go and buy snacks and birthday cards and things like that. They tend to be somewhere where you get food if there are no grocery stores. And because there's less high-quality food in some of these neighborhoods where there's also food deserts, uh, there tends to be higher rates of disease like diabetes, and there's a stronger need for pharmacies in these areas, yet they are closing at a higher rate in these low-income and uh, and neighborhoods that are have more higher need for this. Mm. But this isn't just a concern in the United States. How are pharmacies faring here in the UK? Yeah, so... For some of the same reasons, it still impacts the UK. So staffing shortage is still a huge problem to keep pharmacies afloat. But with the NHS and it being a public healthcare system in the United in the United Kingdom, the majority of the reasons are actually different. So government funding cuts and rising rents, increased patient demand for pharmacies has led to closures in the United Kingdom. So Boots plans to close about 300 stores in the next year. And if you kind of put it in the context, the NHS England recently said it would invest £645 million as part of the Pharmacy First scheme, which is allowing pharmacists to prescribe medicines and uh, for seven common conditions. 
But the aim for that there says to be that there's a bit of a shortfall with these new responsibilities and there's still a bit of a funding gap, which is ultimately leading to some pharmacies in the UK to shutter their doors. Sheena Roster in Edmonton. Many thanks indeed. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. It's time to talk business now with national business reporter and presenter at ABC News, Rachel Papazzoni, who joins us from Perth. Hello to you, Rachel. Hi, Georgina. We're having a look at the US Federal Reserve's meeting. We see that markets have been rallying ahead of that. What are the expectations? Yeah, so we saw the start of this week, uh, Wall Street uh, increase uh, after days of, of, of falling value. Uh, though I must say that the futures uh, isn't looking so good when you're looking at Wall Street for what might happen once uh, trading opens there uh, later today, their time. But the wide expectation is that the US Fed will not lift the cash rate today. Uh, what really will be the focus is what uh, the Chairman Jerome Powell says and, and, and I guess any hints he might give at what will happen from here. Uh, The expectation is that probably not another rate hike at all this year, so potentially not another one in December as well, though that's not as certain as as today's decision. Of course, market conditions have kind of been doing some of the Reserve Bank's job. Uh, You know, we've seen uh, Treasury yields remaining high. That'll be the the big big focus, I think, for analysts in terms of what Jerome Powell says about that. Inflation is falling in the US. It is still higher than what it wants it to be at about 3.5% currently. Uh, But the expectation is that because we've seen these sort of broader market conditions and, and economic slowdown, that perhaps the work required from the central bank isn't uh, as necessary at this point. So it's definitely that higher for longer type mentality. And a lot of analysts will really be looking to see what uh, what uh, the, treas- uh, the US Fed says today. The current cash rate there, just over um, 5.37%. And of course, the, the big risk is not overshooting the market and hiking too, too fast and, and too high, which can have uh, serious ramifications. Because of course, central banks are wary of lifting too hard. Uh, For instance, a New Zealand central bank is warning an increased number of people are in financial stress. Yeah, so New Zealand was one of the first central banks to start its hiking cycle. Now, that was back in 2021. It's now at a 15-year high 5.5%. And the Reserve Bank of New Zealand had said earlier this year that it was deliberately hiking to cause a recession. Uh, and, and, And many central bank governors had been sort of talking about the narrow sort of tightrope of not hiking too hard, too fast and not wanting to cause recession. But New Zealand was very clear on that's what they were targeting. Uh, And and now they've had their uh, semi-annual financial stability review uh, and that's revealed that that an increasing number of people are struggling um, with the current economic conditions. Uh, Pockets of of homeowners and and, and renters are facing financial stress and and that's likely to increase uh, as sort of the flow and effect of the those, those high interest rates uh, go through. Uh, they're expecting the number of mortgage arrears, so that's people who are late on their payments, to increase as well. So that stress is really becoming quite evident and likely to get worse before it gets 
better. Uh, the, the, the one bright spot that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand has pointed out, though, is migration, and, and that has been uh, bigger than, than usual, and that has helped um, stabilise house prices. Uh, they had been falling, but it seems from, from latest data that they've now sort of stabilised where they are, though I should point out that national property prices in New Zealand are still 25% higher than what they were before COVID, so still mm. a, a big issue for a lot of people. And property prices are still rising in Australia? Yeah, we had data out today here, Georgina, that showed that prices were up 0.9 of a percent in October, taking uh, the 12-month increase to 5.6 percent, driven uh, by the smaller capital cities. So I'm in Perth, in Western Australia, uh, and the biggest price rise was recorded here at 1.6 percent for the month. Uh, sm- other smaller cities that um, your listeners may be aware of, Brisbane and Adelaide, were also sort of one and a half percent increased. But the largest cities in Sydney and Melbourne, while their prices are still going up, the rate of that increase is starting to fall. And so we've seen, uh, looking at sort of the three-month breakdown, that the the rate of price rises has gone from about 3.5% to the June quarter to 2.5% this quarter. So while prices are still rising and, and likely to hit a new peak in the next couple of weeks, according to analysts, that, that pace is starting to slow. And, you know, we've had obviously, like all uh, economies, uh, a lot of uh, interest rate hikes being passed through to to borrowers. And while that seems to have not had too much of an impact so far, we know there's a lag uh, and that lag seems to be becoming more evident uh, as as these prices kind of stabilise. Mm. I know here in Britain there are many, many complaints about young people just not being able to get onto the mm. property ladder. And I wonder if that is the case in Australia too. How do property prices uh, uh, level up in terms of, of earning? Oh, it's a huge problem. You're absolutely right. Um, some people are, are sort of borrowing um, the properties that are six or seven times their their sort of capacity to pay their, their incomes. Uh, and what we've seen is in cities like Perth, where I am, in these smaller cities, we've actually seen the big price growth happen in these cities because what we're, we're seeing is actually a migration out of the likes of Sydney and Melbourne. Sydney, the median house price over a million dollars Australian, um, whereas here in Perth, where I am, it's about 600,000, Brisbane and Adelaide about 700,000. So it's more affordable. So we're seeing actually this this huge migration happen uh, through, um, through, I guess, the search for um, uh, cheaper property alternatives, people upending their lives to get into the property market. Mm. And is it likely that buyer confidence will be hit again next week? Unfortunately so, because uh, we are expecting that our central bank will hike uh, the cash rate here again. Now, it has been paused since June uh, when it lifted the cash rate to 4.1%. But because of this still very hot housing market, we also had quarterly inflation data out, which showed uh, an actual uptick in inflation, which obviously is not what we want to be seeing. Um, and, And also out today, the International Monetary Fund actually warning the Reserve Bank of Australia that our economy is too hot and it singled out property prices uh, saying that it does need to increase the cash rate again. So there's a 
broad expectation uh, that we'll see uh, that cash rate increased on Tuesday. Uh, a lot of people very concerned about that, obviously, uh, because they've kind of gotten used to this 4.1% uh, um, plateau that we've had for the last few months. So it may be a bit of a shock to the system and we may see that start to impact property prices as well. Rachel, thank you very much indeed. That's Rachel Papazzoni speaking to us from Perth. You're listening to The Globalist on Monocle Radio. Now it's time to round off the show with a generous helping of cheese. I'm joined now by Patricia Michelson, who's the owner and founder of La Fromagerie in London, just round the corner from our studio here. Patricia, many thanks for joining us. How is climate change affecting cheesemakers in France? Well, um, from what I can see, from what I can see here in the UK as well, is that our summers and autumns are are changing. I mean, we're, we're in the UK now, we're in November now, and still there's leaves on the trees. So in France, it's the same thing. There's a lot of drought, especially in the uh, south um, and southwest. Um, the, there's just not enough rain at the times when they need rain. And uh, so it changes the pasture. And if there's um, less pasture for cattle uh, and herds to graze on, um, it affects the milk. And I understand that then means that there's got to be a lot of fancy footwork to stay within the rules and regulations of which there are myriad. Well, the rules and regu regulations of the um, the, the, the authorised um, uh, cheeses, you know, the ones that you you know and love, um, that have um, a stamp on them, that they have to follow extremely strict rules on um, what they graze on, what the animals graze on, and how they're made. Um, it it does make it very very difficult because these laws have gone back many many years, and uh, frankly, uh, they they need to be updated and also sort of revised taking into account um, the new the new global changes that we are having with our with our weather I mean I was just having a flick through some of the rules they're kind of as you say outdated I mean some of them have 13 pages of rules for one type of cheese yes yes I mean everything takes into account from um, the times of year that they can make the cheese to um, the, the traditional way of actually making the cheese as well, um, what the cheese, uh, what the uh, animals are feeding on, so that they can't have um, uh, the grains and things like that if they're supposed to be pasture and um, only eating um, uh, uh, hay. Or, or grass, and they have to um, they have to be designated areas in which they graze. There's so much that has to be taken into account, and then they have to come round. They have um, the uh, the guys coming round and tasting the cheese to see that it actually tastes as it should, and it, it puts a huge amount of pressure. It costs them a huge amount of money as well to belong to um, and you know the the designated protected. 
um, cheese associations as well. And uh, if you're not able to make the cheese or enough of it, um, it, it can be very onerous on, on the cheesemaker. Mm. Now, we know, of course, that cheesemaking and eating is very important to French culture, but it is also, particularly in the form of raclette, central to Swiss culture too. Tell us about the Raclette World Championship and a surprise winner. Well, this is very interesting. Um, this takes place every year and it's been going on for many years. And uh, it is really very, very serious that one cheese should um, take up you know, so much interest. But it, it is a very, very popular cheese in, in Switzerland, as it is in France as well. And the surprise this year was that um, a Japanese cheesemaker who works for a, a French uh, cooperative um, one silver silver medal for for his cheese and it's no, no surprise to me because uh the japanese have been absolutely um in, involved in cheese making for many many years and in, and there is actually a little island uh, hokkaido um um in the north of japan um who which is actually called uh, Little Savoir, where they uh, where they make amazing cheese. So this um, this extraordinary young, uh, well, he's not so young, but this uh, this young man, Mitty Yamaguchi, um, has has won a silver medal. Unheard of. He he, you know, he he beats everyone. I think he he even beat the the French um, the French competitors as well uh, to make a fantastic cheese. Isn't that amazing? It really is. And you actually know him, don't you? Well, I I know of him. Who I know is um, a guy that probably Mitty absolutely sort of uh, followed. Um, the interest of, which is Nozumi Mayagami, uh, who um, who was probably the first to come to international fame because many years ago in the early 2000s, he 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 won a gold prize for for his cheese that he brought over to Europe to to show in a competition. So Mitty sort of follows in a tradition of uh, of cheese making in uh, Japan that's gone back many many centuries but um you know he he um he has actually worked Mitty actually worked with um Denis Provence in uh, in Savoie who who has beautiful well amazing tunnels where um where he ripe, ripened his cheeses and and Mitty um and Mitty worked with him as um as for maturing and ripening cheeses before he went on to, to go to college and then to where he is now. So it's it's extraordinary that um that this this young man has uh has achieved such status mm. and and is actually revered, which is even more amazing, which is wonderful. It's great. Um we are coming up to Christmas and that's when certainly the Brits consume much more cheese. What are La Fromagerie's Christmas offerings? Well, we've got loads. <laughs> we only have a minute to hear about them. <laughs> yes, well, a minute to hear about them. Right, so we've had today delivered loads and loads of stuff, but um, we've got um, incredible uh, cheese boards and cheese boxes online um, where we're doing, you know, the traditional English-style cheese boards, lovely big chunks of cheddar and and, and Stilton, but also our um, wonderful European cheeses as well, where we very 
carefully sort of curate the cheeses. And you can you can come into our cheese rooms and see mountains of cheeses from um, mid December onwards, where um, you, you can come and choose amazing amazing cheese for your for your Christmas table. We we absolutely um, embrace the whole um, festive season, and um, cheese should be a absolutely part of it because you know who knows what next year brings how well absolutely it's going to be, <laughs> Patricia you know, I will see you in La Fromagerie for my Christmas order thank you very much indeed for joining us here on The Globalist and that's all we have time for today thanks to our producers Emma Searle and Carlotta Ribello our researcher Harrison Warlock and our studio manager Callum McLean after the headlines there's more music on the way I'll be with you for the next few hours playing you uh, all the big tracks from our Monocle playlist. Uh, The briefing is live with me at Midday London Time and The Globalist returns at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 